Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs, and today we have to talk to Hans. And Hans is a managing partner at GGV Capital. And Hans is quite interesting because he takes a very global perspective on investing, especially uh, including China. And his portfolio is quite impressive. It includes Airbnb, Slack, and Wish. And he was one of the first investors in the Show Me, the huge mobile handset company in China, investing in their Series A, B, and C. So not too shabby. So I'm excited to learn more about what Hans has learned over the years and what he's interested in now. So uh, Hans, thanks for uh, joining us today. Uh, thanks, David. Happy to be on the call. Definitely. And so, all right, before we uh, jump into what you're doing now, which is a lot of interesting things, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, I uh, was born in Taiwan. I moved to Los Angeles when I was uh, uh, 13. So I did my middle school and uh, high school in L.A. And then I was uh, fortunate enough to go to Stanford um, for my undergraduate studies. And that's when, uh, right around the time when Internet started becoming a phenomenon. Um, after that, I spent the next all nine years of my career in investment banking and tr- uh, doing two Internet startups. Um, and that took me from New York to Hong Kong to Taipei to Singapore. So I saw quite a bit of the world during that nine-year time period. Wow. Um, and during that, during that time, I also saw that uh, China potentially could emerge as the next interesting uh, uh, frontier for tech investing. Um, it ended up um, coming back to the U.S. to join a U.S. Um, venture firm called Bessemer Venture Partners in 2005 to start their China effort. Um, so from uh, 2005 to now, over the last uh, 12 years, um, is when I built out my venture investing career. Um, about eight years in China and almost four years now back in the U.S. Mm. Wow. All right. And so I got a couple different, well, many questions, but a couple I'll start with it. So in 2005, did you, did you go to Bessler and say, hey, um, we, you know, you should look at China. Let me start your program. Or did they come to you? Or how did that work? Good question. I think back in 2005, 2004, it wasn't obvious that China was going to be the next big thing, hmm. but there were some early signals that it could be interesting. Um, back in 2005, I noticed that um, all the uh, uh, internet companies that are big in the world were all in the U.S. Yet in China, in a short period of time, there were four IPOs that caught my attention. Hmm. That was 2003, the number one travel website in China called Trip went public. Valuation was $260 million. Um, the next uh, IPO was um, uh, Tencent. Uh, that was, that, that's now, you can think of it as sort of the, the Facebook, Instagram, um, WhatsApp of China. And they, um, they, are, uh, they, they were IPO in Hong Kong. The valuation was around um, maybe a billion, $2 billion U.S. And so that was sizable. It was, a, yeah. it was something that was eye-popping. It was the first quote-unquote unicorn in China. And then um, Shen Daobun Public in late 2004 as a gaming company. And then uh, 
um, what was the biggest IPO at that time in 2005 was uh, Baidu, which was known as uh, China's uh, Google. And you know, on the first day um, of their listing on Nasdaq, stock price quadrupled. And went from a, uh, uh, a you know a zero in 2000 to um, a market cap of five billion in March 2005. Mm-hmm. So in the span of five years, you have a five billion dollar market cap company, even though the revenue in 2004, a year before IPO, was only 11 million dollars. So in, in in China, in a short span between um, September 2003 and uh, May 2000. Uh, five in the span of eighteen months, four IPO happened with two well today what we call unicorns over billion dollar valuation. It was uh, it was eye popping, um, and Chinese um, broadband internet penetration not narrowband, um, but broadband. So you can do a lot more broadband obviously than narrowband. Uh, um, broadband uh, PC uh, uh, internet penetration. Uh, was getting to about 100 million users and growing mm-hmm. rapidly, about 20-30% a year. So you you can see that one could imagine that the um, internet may be the uh, fastest way to build a online uh, retailer, whether it's selling virtual items in games or selling physical goods, um, like a an Alibaba, or, uh, like a eBay or Amazon would in the U.S. I mean, in China, that would be uh, Alibaba. Um, and then you can see that um, uh, building a business online is the quickest way to scale on a national basis because going offline in China, each province is almost like a different kingdom, as in the case of Europe. So mm-hmm. it just takes more work to expand offline. So that was, I think that was my hot moment in 2005, saying that, you know what, internet could be the way to go. And in China, a place that most people associate with uh, fast growth, but also corruption and uh, and uh, lack of uh, clarity on uh, on law and so forth. Building a business online actually is easier because the consumers have mm-hmm. to decide to use their service. It's, it's almost uh, it's very mer- uh, pretty much meritocracy, if not democracy. Uh, people like you, they pay for service. If they don't, they cancel. Uh, well, they don't count. So it's very fair. Uh, there's a lot, and the market force decides who wins, who doesn't win. Um, so I just thought that internet could be quite interesting. Uh, obviously, I wouldn't know that 10 years later, of the top 10, you know, internet companies in the world today that's listed, half come from China. Mm. Back in 2005, it was unthinkable. Wow, and and so how you know, at that point in 2005, I don't think there's a, a ton of American VCs thinking the same thing about China. I could be wrong. You know better than me, but. You know, what made you, and from your experience, be able to kind of see that potential? I know you grew up in that, kind of, you know, in Taiwan, um, near China, and then you had some startups and investment banking. You know, wh- how did you see this before many of the right. other VCs? I, I, a lot of smart VCs from uh, San Hero, from, from California, went to China in 2004. Okay. Every single one of them trying to figure out if there's a China play for them, if so, what would be. I think um, I had a benefit of being a student of history and watching how um, East Asia in general, and it's Japan, and then Korea, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, um, the Asian uh, four dragons, uh, three and four tigers, all end up uh, modernizing over a period of uh, uh, two or three decades. And the bet would be that China, um, 
with export-driven uh, economy, exporting a lot of goods will follow that uh, growth engine model as well and become much more modernized than uh, than before. So you have to take that view that uh, it's China's time to modernize. Therefore, there will be a lot of uh, investment opportunities associated with that. And the second thing is that most of the seven body VCs we're looking at China as a way to recruit engineering talent for the portfolio companies in the U.S. And also we're looking at investing, extending the semiconductor investing from U.S. and, and to some extent Taiwan into China. And so what ended up um, happening is that anything that was uh, export-related wasn't as good for venture investing in China. Everything that was about domestic consumption um, was, uh, was something bigger. Um, the China, China, as I said, the broadband internet penetration rate increased and you can see 100, 200, 300 to now 700 million um, broadband uh, internet users uh, 10 years later from when I first moved to China. And that became a huge base um, for some of the cell services to them. And that was something that wasn't as obvious to VCs in Taiwan or VCs um, in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the U.S. And I think, again, as a student in history, I love studying how continental economy emerged in the U.S. Um, after Civil War. Um, when you have railroads built in the U.S. in a short period of time during those four years, I think in the north, from 8,000 miles to 40,000 miles of uh, railway got built. And then after World War, World War II, a highway got built in the U.S. in a big way for the veterans to work. And during those two construction periods, what you got was a unified national economy um, that's connected via railroads first and then from, from highways. And China was starting to build their railroad as well. So you can see that the national economy is emerging in China, and if at political stability, it could be quite interesting. Hmm. That's at a macro level. At a more micro level, um, what I also saw was that um, um, uh, e-commerce, I thought, could take off in China. Because my experience living in China, working for a U.S. Uh, VC firm, was that shopping offline was a terrible experience. Hmm. You buy something, uh, as soon as you bought it, it's yours, even before you leave the store. And most of these offline enterprises were uh, government-linked, run by state-owned enterprises. So the service level wasn't great. Uh, the employees can work there forever. So they didn't care whether they provide the customer service experience or not. Whereas uh, someone like Alibaba was uh, uh, beating eBay with, um, with their free model, um, you can see that users want to spend time on it, buy from other sellers because the alternative is buying, getting nothing in the offline store with terrible service. So, despite the fact that initially people had to wait three weeks, four weeks for shipment, they were willing to buy and try on Alibaba, Taobao, and then Tmall later. And in that process, what happened is that as the more people use the service, the service quality improved. And given that in China there was no credit card, there was no um, uh, any sort of uh, online payment, independent online payment company. Alibaba had to invent their own payment called Alipay. And what Alipay did was that in order to solve the lack of trust issue between buyer and seller in China online, they functioned as an escrow service. So if you were to deposit, you know, $100, $20 in there and you sell some, uh, you buy something, you don't have to worry that the, that the guy doesn't ship it to you because the money you pay them sits on Alipay as a third-party escrow service. And only once you get your good, and within a week you don't complain about a good, would your money be released to the seller. So you have you didn't have to worry about who the seller was, 
whether he or she is trustworthy or not, because your money is safe with Alipay. And as a seller, you don't have to worry about whether you ship your goods. The the, uh, the buyer wouldn't pay you because the money is already there in the Alipay escrow service. So that replaced the need for having a credit card, as in the case we would do in the U.S. with PayPal and credit card, in order for online payment to, uh, problem to be solved. And then shipping was a, was a problem originally. There was no UPS, there was no FedEx, there was no DHL. It was easy for USBC to see that every condition that made Amazon and eBay popular in the U.S. simply didn't exist in China. But in China, because shopping is such a terrible experience offline back then, that online people wouldn't figure out alternative solution to solve that pain point. So what I learned is that instead of just copying what works in another country, one has to understand the historical condition, hmm. sociological condition for a society to solve its own pain point, which are very common as the users in the U.S. in a different way that fits the localized condition. I think that's my second aha moment, that localization is more important than original creative idea because how to figure out how to localize something determine whether you can build a huge company or not. Hmm. And that, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think a lot of startups miss is that you can have a really creative idea, but if you don't understand the process of how to make the idea happen and and make it part of somebody's daily routine, and uh, then the, it's not going to go anywhere at all. Which is uh, right. That's interesting. And and, it, and the, what I also learned is that the lessons I saw in China is not China specific, because what I saw in China is that it's a bottom up approach. You target a mass market users. Or there are more of them online. They need more help, and they're underserved. Instead of catering to the richest one percent, you can focus on the remaining, the rest ninety-nine percent. You can much build a much bigger business. The way I, the analogy I like to use is that in the in the U.S., we see Uber start with Uber Black as a premium black car service for the the uh, the one percent um, customers because they want to build the best uh, the best brand. They want to go out and recruit the best driver. The service at one percent, and then four years later, they offer Uber X, and that become a mass market um, solution that ends up propelling Uber to become a much bigger company. Obviously, since then, you have Uber Pool and other services that target different segment of the of, of the consumer base. But Uber X was the one that went uh, much more bigger scale because more people can afford Uber X, and therefore would consider Uber X or even Uber Pool as a substitution for car ownership in the U.S. In China, it was different. China is the Uber. It's called DD, DIDI, and we're an investor in the company as well. And eventually, uh, DD bought uh, Uber China last year. Um, but DD started off with going after taxi. Um, just how do you book a taxi? So they couldn't even charge user to book taxi because by law, in China, you can't charge user for doing that. And um, the industry, for the first few years, they had a lot of volume, a lot of rights booked, but no revenue. People wouldn't give them money to grow because once they have the user base and the market share, they can always upsell value add services offer DD Black later for the high end user because they already have an established brand people trust. More high end user will willing to come and use their service. And they build a company exactly the opposite way that Uber did with the mass market first to raise the most amount of money, have the biggest market share before they try to monetize uh, with uh, additional value add services to specific higher end users later. So this model, we actually think, uh, was not particular to China, but it also can work in many other emerging markets around the world and potentially even in the U.S. My experience with Wish that target uh, consumers in flyover states, um, give them the flexibility to buy anything they want 
anything they please, um, with mostly merchants from uh, China today, is uh, as a, a testament that this thesis can work even in the U.S. Yeah, and w- Wish is pretty amazing. We've bought stuff from Wish. I think my wife brought some, brought some dresses on there, and man, it, I mean, it's amazing that it's 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 a affordable yet good um, good stuff, and it comes to your door. Like the shipping time is a lot less than I thought it'd be. So that yes, very interesting. And initially, they, they, in the initial, also took them three to four weeks, and over time, as there are more people using it, and the merchants trust them more, and will be willing to be more responsive, that shipping time gets cut down to now a week or two weeks. I think over time it will be a week or less. So as there are wow. more volume, wow. the uh, the delivery time could be a lot less, and they can offer once they know you more and know you're a frequent shopper, they can figure out a way to get to the stuff sooner by be willing to take out a bit more inventory um, on the most popular items with the the most uh, uh, active uh, consumers. So once once you have a way to use data to help you manage segment and user base, you can provide more customized. Uh, service uh, higher service level to the most frequent shoppers uh, that provide highest uh, uh, profits over uh, over time. So it is interesting to see how Wish using a the two founders came from Google and Yahoo. They were search guys, so they they always want to use technology to solve problems. So they have the leanest team of anybody who's seen the e- in e-commerce space. You have done the most volume of most um, really? price value, and it, it's just kind of interesting that you see a mixture of East and West. Of uh, both Amazon and uh, Alibaba in uh, Wish. How how lean a team is it? Do you know? Or, or we well, probably do know. I don't. Maybe we can't disclose it. <laughs> I'm curious now. I think what I'm gonna say is that the employee number of employees is in the hundreds, wow. not in the thousands. Wow. Yet the the gross margin of value you're doing could be counted in billions a year. Wow. Wow. Okay. And and I, so back in 2005, I'm curious why. I mean, I know you had an investment background, but you also had startup background. You, you know, you saw this huge opportunity in China, um, and and you st- you decided to go the VC route versus like starting, you know, your own internet company or startup. Uh, you know, why did you decide to go the the VC route? Versus right. Good question. Um, for me, I, I know my limitation. After I t- t- uh, do the did my two startups, I realized that I am. I am not someone who's as good as focus on one vision, one mission, and completely uh, see that through. I, I have a wider range of interests, much more interesting, interested uh, to figure out how technology affects society, and therefore, how do you come up with a better solution that's both um, disruptive at the same time appreciative to improve the utility uh, factor in society. So uh, that means I will you know, fall in love with more than one vision, more than one uh, startup idea. Um, as such, being a VC, it allowed me to work with you know, tens, uh, if not hundreds of portfolios over my lifetime would be more interesting and, uh, uh, for me uh, and, and fit my skill set better than work on just one. Uh, that's why I admire entrepreneurs who can focus on just one idea uh, for five, ten years, tremendously. I think it takes a lot of risk. It is sometimes extremely lonely to be a, uh, a good uh, entrepreneur. Uh, and a little bit crazy, too. <laughs> so I have a lot of animation for, 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 for entrepreneurs who want to do that. I'm happy to be behind them to help them to succeed instead. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and so how, you know, when 
so why didn't you just focus on China, or did you just focus investments on China when you, back in two thousand five? Because now question. you do both. But that's not a good question. Yeah. Why do I want to focus on China? Um, several people asked me that when I decided to make the move in 2013 to move back to the Bay Area. What, what I saw was that in 2005, going to China was the right bet because China was rising. It could be on par with U.S. China and U.S. will end up being the two largest technology in the market in the world. So that was the trend I saw um, when I decided to go there. Um, in 2013, I saw a separate trend, which is that more Chinese companies will eventually go expand beyond China. Um, and more U.S. companies, startups, will be interested in China, either selling into China or sourcing from China, startup R&D centers in China, um, or eventually may even learn something from China, as the case with many uh, social networking companies in the U.S. today learning from WeChat in China, given its popularity. So I, I thought there would be a lot more cross-border uh, convergence between the two markets. And since I've already been in China for eight years, um, I thought it would be the best way for me to be uh, useful and helpful to my portfolio companies is to come back to California while staying maintain linkages in both markets. So right now I go to New York probably six times a year, uh, LA uh, four times a year, Seattle twice a year, and also go to China six times a year. Wow. So each month I'm either in New York or, uh, uh, or, or China, basically. And there's always something going on. And I think over time, I'll probably end up going to uh, different cities in Texas and uh, and Midwest. Uh, Even if they don't go there as frequently directly, I think many of my portfolio companies in the U.S. were target uh, users in the the South uh, as well as in the Midwest. Basically, anywhere we think they're underserved consumers, um, we think that it would be very interesting to have servers on target towards them. And I think... uh, Something else came along the conversation in 2013, 2014, is that with the arrival of millennials, there were more similarity between millennials in U.S. and China and around the world than they are between the millennials and their parents. Mm. Meaning that a someone in a millennial in New York, in Austin, in Beijing, in Shanghai have more shared values and more shared tastes than they are between the millennials, and their respective parents in each culture. And that was a sort of insight or a intuition that I followed when I made investing. That's why you can see some kind of, somebody like Wish can scale globally outside of China so quickly. They're based in San Francisco, but within the first one year of selling um, Chinese merchant products on their platform, um, you already see users from uh, the flyover states in the U.S., you see users from Western uh, Europe, specifically Germany, UK, mm-hmm. and France, as well as users in Latin America, millennials, all using it. And the span of the speed of that happened was much faster than anything I'd ever seen uh, scaling on a global basis. And that taught me that uh, millennials love spending time online, especially on mobile phone. They love to swipe right, swipe left, just to check out what's <laughs> going on and would be very quick with their dispense their opinion on uh, any product. It doesn't take a lot of time to make make decision and have uh, have opinion of their own. And that is a global phenomenon, not a U.S. specific or China specific phenomenon. Which means that companies that are focused on mobile first uh, can build a global first company targeting millennials. And the price point for the millennials actually is a lot cheaper than otherwise. Therefore, that a lot of 
talent in the U.S. that's good at branding, storytelling, and so forth, can be now tailored towards the Uber X product without needing to wait for four years before showing up with Uber X. They can start with Uber X from day one, and mm. that to me is super exciting. Mm. Interesting. And are, are there certain areas that are you super are really excited about? I mean, e-commerce has definitely been a theme in consumers. Um, where you think that could be right for disruption disruption in the United States where you're focusing more on the, the masses instead of the, the high end. Um, and then all these millennials focus. Just, um, I think for, uh, for TGV, we are, we managed close to $4 billion yeah. in invest both in the U.S. and China. The portfolio is roughly evenly split. We have six uh, uh, partners um, plus another roughly 10 investment professionals. And in the, in the, we divide up our team into three buckets, three sectors. And each sector has a global practice uh, can do investment both in the U.S. and China. The three sectors are um, consumer uh, internet um, and includes uh, B2B marketplaces as well. And then there is a, a SaaS, enterprise SaaS, uh, cloud investment that look after uh, providing solutions to enterprises big and uh, medium in size. Um, the third practice in frontier tech that's looking at AI, machine learning, um, VR, AR, anything that uh, takes a use a hardcore technology to solve a, uh, a national or global problem. So those are the three practices we have, with some other additional minor partners underneath. But this three is the, the three big buckets, and so we think that these are trends that will be significant over the next five to ten years that we need to we need to capture. Specifically within consumer internet, we think that um, targeting millennials on a global basis can allow you to build a global company from uh, from from day one. Hmm. And this permeates from social networking to e commerce to building e brands um, as well as building marketplaces that make it more efficient and collapse the supply chain of a lot of offline economy verticals. For example, in uh, travel, Airbnb is affecting how hotel run the business. In um, home furnishing, house, our portfolio, is affecting how uh, architects and designers work with their suppliers and, and, their, and their clients. Um, in the case of uh, DD, is affecting how transportation industry is going to be shaped going forward. So all this is what we call uh, sort of consumer internet uh, that we, tra- we, we track. On the um, in the case of uh, SaaS uh, enterprise, we think that more and more uh, cloud-based uh, software solution is going to change the world and make enable small, medium companies to compete against big enterprises and make them more efficient and leverage internet to scale much quicker uh, with less amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, the the way you build a social product today is in the consumer space is affecting the the way that an enterprise product is being built. That it's going to be easier to use enterprise product, you know, the same way you play with Facebook, Insta, or Snapchat. You look at how Slack, it is a very consumer friendly product, yeah. yet it's used for corporate use and they scale much faster than any corporate SaaS ever before. We think more companies like SaaS, uh, Slack, and more products than Slack will be built for various segments within the enterprise space. And obviously, Frontier Tech, it, it combines hardware, software, and services all into one. Um, and we think that uh, something like Alexa or Echo is going to be a revolutionary product. Uh, 
Jiang DJI from China is the number one drums company in the world. And what they're doing in the consumer space and down the road in the industrial space are very interesting and exciting. So across the board, these are the trends we see. And obviously, we, 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 we think that digital health or healthcare in general over the next 10 years will be much more effective in the, in the way that IT industry has, has been over the last 30 years. Uh, so we started investing in digital health as well to study that trend more. Interesting. I think I, I think I use the majority of your portfolio companies at some point. <laughs> How's Airbnb, Wish? You've mentioned so many that I I use some like How's I've now look at almost every day. So I, yes, yeah, same yeah. here. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's it's both inspirational, give me new exactly, ideas, exactly. Well, as well as aspirational. Yeah, it makes one work harder to make your house better. <laughs> it's true. There's a lot of eye candy. <laughs> I know. Every time that comes in my inbox, I'm like, ooh, <laughs> what's what's it going to show me today? <laughs> it's terrible and awesome. No, I mean it's terrible in a good way, but <laughs> right, right. I, I love I it. Don't you yeah. Um. So, you know, I think we're kind of running out of time, but I mean, speaking of inspirational, I just, it's it's fun talking to you because you know you, I just love your vision. And uh, your, you know, your thesis, and but uh, I'm really curious, like with Wish or with like Show Me, like you're meeting this team, you know, at what point do you know they have something special? Because you know, how early did you invest in Wish or Show Me? What, what did they have? Did they have much? Like, how do you right. know they're going to be able to? I'm. This is the p- question I'm always curious about. Everyone, it's just it. Uh, it how do you know? Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's right. Uh, it's one thing to write a. A small check, fifty thousand, hundred thousand dollars, to participate in a like, hundred companies, and one of them ends up being exactly. uh, Wish yep. that, that That's one way to invest. That's, I mean, that's not how we invest. Um, with Xiaomi, it was uh, was unique. I got to know the founder, Lei Jing, um, for three years before he decided to do his second startup. He was at his first startup, uh, Kingsoft, for eighteen years before they went public, and then he took time off for three years to uh, invest as angel investor because he was interested in figuring out what is the next big trend. So he's investing exclusively in social networking in China, as well as mobile internet services and uh, e-commerce. And those happen to be the three trends I like in the consumer internet space at that time in China. So we clicked, uh, we co-invested together. And in the process of seeing him doing that, you can tell he's edgy, thinking about what to do next. So when he decided to do his next startup, he decided it would be something that can do all three capture all three trends, the bigger. And that's the built his own smartphone. And the way that we will sell a smartphone or market a smartphone, introduce a smartphone, is going to be a very social networking way, in a way that allow users who want to talk about his phone, introduce phones to each other. He wants to sell the phone over the internet because he thinks e-commerce is much better than building a business than doing through offline retail and bypassing the middleman and pass on the saving onto the users. He knew that... Um, you want to build something that was going to be able to provide a lot of mobile internet services beyond just the hardware phone. He think of the company as a, a data company, not a hardware company. Mm. So the way he thought about how he's going to approach and build something that's disruptive um, and make the price so affordable that a lot of users can buy uh, uh, a spec that's comparable to a Samsung, comparable to iPhone, but a much cheaper price because it's sold directly to them. He's not sharing anything with the middleman. Is not putting any money on marketing because the price will be so affordable. People will naturally be in awe, talk about it, and market it for him for free. And Gus uh, and the experience he had from running into the company earlier to give him the comfort to try this revolutionary model was something that uh, most people just 
wouldn't think is possible. But for someone like me, who spent so much time with him and loved the free trends that he has been investing, I was naturally very um, gravitated and inherently believed that model, his model, could work in China. And no one else had a combination of his experience to make that model work. So if you can see the intersection of a great idea that fits the competitive landscape at a time, no one's know how to do it. This entrepreneur and his whole team is uniquely positioned to make it work. Then you have more guts to bend on something that's completely disruptive. And someone told me for Xiaomi to work back in 2010, Motorola, Ericsson, Nokia <laughs> will all have to fail yeah. for Xiaomi to work. And back in 2010, 2009, it's impossible to imagine that to happen. But if you believe that his model makes sense, because you see how it happened in online gaming already, you've seen it happen on online commerce already, you have seen it happen on um, uh, online social networking already, you think that, hey, this model could be disruptive for the next one, which is smart uh, headphones. And obviously, since 2010, iPhone, Xiaomi, Samsung um, have been the uh, Huawei had been the four biggest winner of that space, and now you don't you don't hear Nokia, Motorola, Ericsson as much uh, these days. And so, um, I think being close to action and see what's on the compelling landscape and believe that I hate to say this, but it's true that democracy and uh, meritocracy combined together is the most powerful, most unifying, most uh, liberating force there is. Um, you may have your your case of fake news from time to time that you need to manage, but at the same time, you also release a lot more potential that possible um, that that any monopoly uh, potentially could be disrupted. Um, and so, if you have that belief that internet technology could be used for good cause, and and despite some of the uh, problems that could happen from time to time, then you'll believe that what they can do back in 2010 made sense. Now, in the case of Wish, I asked uh, Peter and Danny five questions um, in, uh, in the fall of 2013, which were, what's selling on your platform, branded or unbranded? And most people want to hear branded goods, because that means you have a special relationship with the brand, you have something that a lot of people will, would, would trust and want, therefore you, can, uh, you have a special advantage. For me, I actually want to hear private label or unbranded goods. Because that means that you can, it's a, it's, a, it's a product that you can scale more quickly and it's more affordable to the masses. And you can figure out how to sell brands later. Uh, I don't worry about the fact that uh, you don't have good branding from day one. You sell unbranded goods and brands won't work with, work with later. I don't think that's true. I think once you have volume, you have market share, you provide good customer service, eventually brands will come. They will be tough to win in the beginning. But over time, once you're big, that you can figure out a way to work with them later. So game scale first with something that's more affordable for the mass market to me made more sense. That means unbranded goods. And second, I asked them where they source the goods from. They told me mostly from China. And I was impressed because most people in the U.S. wouldn't have the guts to go to China to do that. And the source from Chinese merchants online to sell the users worldwide. Because that just seems very hard to manage. And number three, I asked them, um, who's buying in the U.S.? Is the people in New York, San Francisco, L.A.? Or the people are consumers in, uh, in the flyover states? And I want to actually I want to hear fly overseas. I don't want to sell something only people in the top three, four cities can buy. Because how big is that market? That's maybe at best a 20 million market worldwide, uh, 30 million uh, market worldwide. It is going to be extremely niche. And niche is not interesting. 
Um, and they said, you know, they show me a map of where this uh, delivered their uh, zip code of where they delivered their their, pro- their, their their goods to, and most of these on the flyover states, which I absolutely love it. And then um, the fourth question I asked them is that how many, what's the sales split between uh, revenue split between U.S. and elsewhere? I'm going to see how fast they can scale the business. And within um, six months of trying this solution, they said over um, uh, close to 50 percent of the goods are sold awesome in the U.S. now. It's still below 50, but growing fast. And so I saw that this is one of the rare e-commerce companies that can sell globally from early on, and that's extremely hard to find. That means that people don't mind the fact that a product came from China. They're okay to put up with some of the uh, Asian sizes if there's more choices for them to choose from in a price extremely affordable. They're they willing to live with the lim- limitations. And uh, the, the market spoke and said, that's the right model. And lastly, asked them, how many people do you have in China? Uh, zero. But we can use the help to help the building in China. I said, sure. I've been in China for eight years, just got back. Still have a lot of good network there. We have to, do, to, to figure out a way to scale up your team in China. So those five questions, every single answer will turn someone in, um, in, in the U.S., in the VC space, off. But those were exactly the five answers I was looking for. to fit my thesis, and I love the scrappiness and the drive, the hardworking uh, personality of, of, the, of the two co-founders. So decided to make the decision to bet on them. I met them only, I met them maybe only twice and was able to have the comfort that they were doing the right thing. Wow. Interesting. And, uh, all right. So we're almost out of time. I'm curious. I, I really like how you think and, uh, you know, a lot of your portfolio companies, I'm sure the founders, it's much to their credit, but I also think you probably. And it's definitely to their credit. I'll be very clear. No, I know. I know. You I was going to give you credit just because, you know, I, in a sense, because I, I, I do appreciate that. I know, I know you want to give them all the credit, but I mean, you, I, the energy you give off is, you know, pretty inspirational. I feel like you could, uh, when you talk, you can help people walk through walls a little bit, which is a uh, you know a big part of probably investing, right? Just being there to help motivate them through the, the downs and ups of uh, building a company. Um, so yeah, we, we actually enjoy doing that to be able to share our sort of belief, enthusiasm in what they're trying to do with them. Because I, being a full more entrepreneur, I know how lonely it is at night, uh, one o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. You look around the in office, and you're stuck making something work. And you know that if you don't make the right decisions, you know, 50, 100 people's lives and their familyhood, will, will, you know, will, will, their livelihood and family will be affected. Um, so we, we know how hard it is to do that. So we try to find ways possible to support them. We don't make investments lightly, but once we do, we're committed to help them to succeed. I think that's important uh, for the VCs not to get too carried away with uh, their own uh, role and impact. Um, but we have to be someone that can, you know, cheer around and support our Makes sense. And all right, so I, I know we're pretty much out of time. Do you have time for two shortish questions? If you don't, that's fine too. Okay. Well, one sure. one of them is, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm curious. You've you probably have seen a lot. You know, what, what have you learned from the companies? Your, I was going to say failed investments. What what I have what I have learned is that. Uh, and, and in some sense, it's, uh, I think we're very, um, we're very lucky. All of us are very lucky for in this time period. Because uh, being uh, in history, uh, look at over the last you know 
two, three thousand years, people are war more with each other than when and then they are peacetime. And uh, so, being a being a period with nothing really major um, on a global scale have happened since World War II allow us the chance to have prosperity and to grow um, and do things in a way that. Um, that's just not possible a few hundred years ago when it's almost a war or something every other year. Um, so from that standpoint, I'm, I am thankful to see how, uh, how technology can become, um, uh, put into interesting use, uh, with venture money, um, since the, uh, the seventies and eighties. Um, but I don't, we don't take, we don't, we shouldn't take that for granted and seeing how, um, even before the um, uh, the election results from last November, even a year and a half earlier, uh, internally we had discussion, and I had, I had thought that um, election may turn on the way it did, because there are a lot of people uh, in the U.S. who haven't, and worldwide, haven't benefited as much through technology. So I think for us, we want to continue this growth um, and continue to see technology making a difference. Um, how do you um, make sure that the fruits of technology innovation is more even, uh, more well distributed uh, throughout society? What should the, the, uh, the technology companies need to do to invest more in um, uh, the viral states in the case of the U.S.? Instead of just recruiting from the top 20 universities, does that make sense to figure out a way to recruit from the top 100 universities in the U.S.? And, and you know, bigger R&D centers in key cities in um, in the South and Midwest. All, all that is something that a technology company needs to think more times um, uh, thinking about. And we learned from a portfolio company that the entrepreneurs uh, in New York and San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and LA are great, but there are interesting, great entrepreneurs everywhere. So we, we're hoping that um, startups that are in New York, San Francisco, and LA with founders that originally came from the Midwest and South would be interested to expand their services and expand their team or presence back home. We uh-huh. saw that in China happen, and we think that in the U.S. it's not impossible for it to happen, as, 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 especially if real estate prices in the uh, New York, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, and LA continue to increase, the spill over effect could happen. So, uh, I think over the next 10, 20 years, what will be most interesting if is to see how technology gets um, uh, uh, diffused throughout society and, and more startups come out and happen in more than the few clusters we're in today. I think that will be the single most determinant as to how much more prosperity we can enjoy as a society. Um, so I think that that is something that I, I, I issue I care about I, I look at. Uh, I think um, someone someone calls it the uh, uh, the former founder Ariel calls it the rise of the rest. And I think there's there's definitely some merit and truth to that. And from looking at Wish, I can definitely see that it is it is possible and doable. Well, of course, uh, we like that since we're based in Madison, <laughs> Wisconsin, one of the flower states, and. We think we have some good stuff going on here, so yeah, I, I like that vision. And uh, yeah. um, and I think it would take more uh, someone from Wisconsin who has worked in in uh, Silicon Valley or New York ends up going on to go back. 
Yeah. Uh, one of the uh, one of the, the people we met at CMU, uh, Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, uh, I think it's Professor uh, Andrew Moore. He uh, he uh, he's now running a uh, uh, computer science uh, uh, school in um, in uh, at CMU. He was at Google for ten years. When he left CMU, a lot of people were disappointed because he had choose to go to Google. But now, after he made it made in Google for ten years, he went back. Now that with the knowledge and network that he has, uh, he can be much more beneficial to the CMU community in, uh, in, in, in Pittsburgh. It's almost the, in the case of like LeBron James. He had to leave Cleveland <laughs> to learn how to win. And once he went, went back and did the, did the impossible, brought Cleveland in championship. I think the same kind of uh, uh, sort of trend analogy could be applied in the tech space as well. Oh, I like it. All right. And uh, all right, so last question. You, you seem, I'm curious how you keep learning and, uh, and what you read. I mean, you seem like a, a man of history, and which I like. But uh, yeah, what do you find yourself reading to uh, get new ideas or just, uh, it could even just be for fun too? I, I think that uh, any idea that eventually needs to take off and become something big has to fit what the society needs. Therefore, as much as I read about what's new and check out the different tech blogs and look at what, what are the new gadgets and so forth, I still come down to enjoying reading history about technology diffusion, uh, technology adoption. So any business books or history books, that's about how do you take the new idea and make for mass market attract me. Um, so things from uh, like um, how, how to cross the, the, the chasm that uh, uh, Jeffrey Moore wrote back in the, uh, the 90s to what uh, uh, books like The Outlier, Tipping Point, uh, Blink, uh, written by uh, uh, Malcolm... Gladwell, uh, yeah. That's right, Gladwell. And to Black Swan. These are things that constantly read and help me to recognize mm-hmm. patterns. Um, and in general, I, I guess, like I said, I, just, I love reading history. So modernization, uh, anything from the uh, late Middle Ages, Renaissance period, to uh, the modern times in Europe, in the U.S., in Japan, in China, uh, in Russia, or India, attract me. So I think once once someone has more of a historical perspective looking at things, you don't just, you don't just focus on what's happening tomorrow. You focus on over the next three, five, ten years, what should happen, what could happen, and what would better society if it does happen. So how do we go back and figure out how to go from point A to point B as a result? Um, that's how I think it helps me to recognize uh, what could be the next big thing quicker sooner. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, Hans, I really appreciate your time and thoughts and your energy. And yeah, it was awesome getting to hear about your experience and your vision like way back in 2005 and what it is now. So really appreciate your time and coming on the show. Sure, sure thing. I enjoy your questions. When you first emailed me the questions, I was I was impressed. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, Sorry, it took a couple of times to make this work. No, I'm glad we finally connected, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to kind of follow your career over the next uh, 10, 20 years. So definitely hope things go well, and uh, appreciate it. And, uh, and sure thing. And thanks Happy for. I would you. Definitely, and and thanks for giving multiple shout outs to the flyover states too. <laughs> That's good. But <laughs> well, I believe it's going to be here. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, thanks, and thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. As always, I greatly appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Hans.